the PaceCast from Pace Communications, hosted by Anita Pace and very special guests. Don't say, what if? Say, why not? You know, don't say, oh, what if it doesn't work? What if I'm no good? What if people don't like me? What if I can't do it? What's the worst that can happen? Just give it a try. And I think that's what's really informed most of my career. I think I've tried to be more inspirational. I've encouraged my children and my two stepchildren as well to be adventurous, you know, spend your money traveling and having experiences, not buying things and put yourself forward and work hard. If you work hard and people know you work hard, you will be successful. Hello and a very warm welcome to this month's PaceCast. I'm Anita Pace. Thank you for joining us. So this month, I am delighted to say that I'm joined by Deb Oxley. Now, Deb has had um, many roles in her diverse career, and I'm looking forward to talking about that in a bit more detail. More recently, as the Chief Executive of the Employee Ownership Association, she's now a very busy lady um, with a portfolio career. Um, So I'm delighted that she's taken time out of her very busy schedule to join us today. Hi, Deb. Hi, Anita. So as always, we've asked Deb to bring in uh, an object that's meaningful to her and is something that's maybe influenced her career or her... um, has had a big impact on her life. So I don't know what she's brought in, so I'm looking forward to seeing slash hearing all about it. So over to you. So again, like lots of your guests, what a difficult thing to do because I could have brought lots of things. Um, So I went into the loft and dusted this off, which is um, my memories of doing my first London Marathon. And you can see I've gathered them all together. So And I did this straight afterwards, so it's... Um, for those of you who are just listening and not watching, it's a, a small picture frame with the medal and a f- the official photograph of me going across the line and the official time and even which the, was I can't uh, see out of my glasses. Four hours thirty-two. Well done for your first um, one. And I also brought a second item because it relates very strongly to it, which is the second time I did the marathon, which <laughs> was in two thousand eleven, uh, because I beat my earlier time by five minutes. And yet I was um, 13 years older. Well done. So where was the second one? Was that in London as well? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, well I've done. only ever done two marathons and they were both London. So, yeah. And why I brought it in? Um, well, first of all, because I'm really proud of doing it. Um, but when I reflected thinking about today, I suddenly realised that everything about that experience is part of me. So... The reason I even entered was because somebody close to me at the time said, you'll never do a marathon. Ooh, so that spurred you on. (laughs) Yeah. So that was the sort of red rag to the bull moment. And then I thought, "Mm, do you know what? That's much of my career has been like that. Um, Then I think back to how disciplined I had to be. Mm. So um, my son was eight months old when I did the first marathon And I can remember I was breastfeeding him for the first five months and I got my entry when I was still feeding him. So I was really disciplined um, and I found it really hard, the training. I don't think I'd ever ran past about six miles at that point. And I cried a lot and I wanted to give up lots and I never did. And the London Marathon used to, certainly, well, still is. I know it, was, it changed because of uh, um, the pandemic, but it's held in April. So most of your training would have been done in the winter months mm, as well. Yeah. Um, 
So there were lots of long runs on a Sunday mm. during the day, but there were lots of evening runs as well. And I remember I made a big mistake in my training, but it taught me a really important lesson, which meant when it came to the day, I did it. I didn't hit the wall and I did it in more or less the time I'd set myself, which was four hours 30. And um, yeah, and I just thought, gosh, that reflects a lot of me, I think, and the way my career has evolved. The only difference with this was I did have a plan to run the marathon. I don't think my career has been planned. <laughs> <laughs> Even though it's been hugely successful to date. Yeah, opportunistic, I would say, rather than planned. Um, I was thinking about what's the analogy. It's a bit like crazy paving my career. Yeah. So let's, uh, um, we'll talk about your career and uh, the success you've had and where you are today. But let's dial it right back to the beginning mm -hmm. because you said that this this picture, and thank you for bringing it in, it's clearly um, um, important to you. Why is it in the loft, by the way? Why is it not proudly on display? Because when we moved house the last time, um, which was 12 years ago, um, there's, I discovered there were lots of things in the loft that we must have just put up there temporarily that never made their way <laughs> down. So this weekend, I'm going to be going back into the loft yeah. and this one is now staying yeah, down. So I'll should. pop it in my office at home. Yeah, so it should. So you said that there's a, there's, um, this symbolises your character, a, mm. a lot of it. So let's talk about that and your, your early life and the influences on your life and, and your parents' role and, and how you became the successful businesswoman you are today. Gosh, it's really hard to do, isn't it? Because I'm not a psychotherapist. <laughs> but um, so I had a very humble um, start in life. Uh, mum and dad, myself and my brother. My brother's 10 years older than me. So I did feel like I grew up as an only child, really. Um, dad was a lorry driver. Mum worked at the hospital in an admin role. They were very um, ambitious for me, but not necessarily inspirational because they'd had very modest lives themselves mm -hmm. um although dad should have had a different life but his own family circumstances meant things changed for him when he was four so he was very intelligent um far too intelligent to be a lorry driver um so he was quite supportive of me and they were both ambitious for me mm -hmm. however that said it was 1984 and i was first year of A-levels in a comprehensive school in West Hull and decided that I didn't really need A-levels because all my friends were getting jobs. So why don't I just leave mm. and get a job? So the only stipulation from my mum and dad was you've got to get a job. You can't not have a job and live in this house. And did they indicate what sort of job they wanted you to no. have or was it any job? It was any job. Right. They didn't care. Mm. Um, so give you a little bit of the they were they were supportive of me, but not necessarily inspirational. So I remember doing my A-levels and you had time in your diary to fill up. And my mum's response was, well, I think you should learn to type mm -hmm. because if it all goes wrong, you can be a secretary. And I've always remembered that. And it was really funny last week, I was at business day and listening to the managing one of the managing directors or chief executives from Betty's who said exactly the same, mm. which just made me smile because... Mm. At the time, I remember thinking it's not very aspirational for me to want to just be a secretary. Not there's anything wrong with not there's anything wrong with being a secretary. But at the time, it was the way my mum positioned it. Yeah. I was doing economics, English literature, um, and English language, and she wanted me to learn to type in case it all went wrong. 
Um, but now I'm a touch typist. Exactly. So and it's funnily brilliant. enough, um, we, we had um, typing as a subject at, at my school that I went to, and I chose it because I thought at the time I was going to go into journalism. I don't know why I thought that, but anyway. And I just thought it was going to be a useful thing to be able to, to type. Um, yeah. And look, I can, like similar to you, I can touch type, and I'm so glad I can because yeah. it's we're all using it every day now aren't we yeah absolutely and and you can think and type at the same time mm. so you save yourself huge so amounts time. of time so sorry we digressed the, into a typing pool <laughs> um so yeah carry on um so yeah I, I i got a job so my first job was working for hull city council delivering the post um which wasn't a particularly glamorous job but i loved it because it gave me financial independence um and then uh, through a few accidental moves, um, I ended up working at the then Hull Telephone Department, um, which later became KCOM. And then through a series of just fortunate opportunities, ended up doing a range of different jobs, um, which were loosely around marketing, communications, mm. product management. And it was at a time when that company which is now KCOM, was experimenting in all sorts of areas. So software development, call centres, product de development. So um, again, I suppose one of the, when I reflect on, you know, people say you were either very lucky or it was, you know, you're in the right place at the right time. I think probably my childhood, um, and I don't know why this was the case, but I've always had this view of every experience is worth doing. So you'll, and um, I think my children now smile when I say this because I, I give them this bit of advice. Don't say, why not? Mm. Say, um, sorry, don't say, what if? Say, why not? You know, don't say, oh, what if it doesn't work? What if I'm no good? What if people don't like me? What if I can't do it? What's the worst that can happen? Just give it a try. And I think that's what's really informed most of my mm. career. So every time right, somebody's yeah. asked me, do you want to try this? Would you would you do this for us? My answer has always been, yeah, why not? Mm. I think to some extent you're making your own luck in, in that regard, aren't you? Because mm. you're seizing the opportunities rather than seeing them as maybe um, more challenging than they, they need to be. And I know I'm very lucky because I know that fear of failure holds a lot of people back. And as I say, I can't analyse or psychoanalyse why I feel like that. Maybe I had a very secure upbringing, you know, and, and my personal self-confidence and self-esteem mm. were high. So even if I do fail and I have failed, like everybody has, I can brush myself down and but just start again. But it sounds like your parents didn't have any expectations. There was no pressure coming from them. The pressure, if there was any pressure at all, it was it was your own self-imposed. Mm. So, so mm. maybe that gave you the freedom and flexibility to say yes as opposed to no mm. to these opportunities. Yeah, and I think... That probably reflects on why when I was 21, I went and did a part-time degree. Mm. Um, I didn't need to, but I think by then I'd sort of realised some of my peers from school had graduated mm. and looked at them and thought, well, you know, I'm just as bright as they are, so why don't I give it a try? I don't know if it really influenced my career. It was just self-satisfaction yeah. that I did it. Yeah. So you were at KCOM for how long in, in total? Oh, on and off, probably for about seven or eight years. Yeah. I spent Progressing a little, through the ranks? Yeah, I spent a little bit of time at the old Humberside County Council, which came directly from KCOM. So we were one of the first distributors of these newfangled devices called personal computing. <laughs> and um, the then Humberside County Council bought uh, a load of these computers 
to help with the um, automation of the school office environment. And the guy who bought all those computers then pinched me from KCOM at the time to set up a group who would go out across the county, as it was, across the whole of the Humber region, and install computers into schools for local management of schools. I did that for a few years, gave me my first taste of managing a small team. Um, but then I got a bit bored and I went back to KC um, and did uh, actually help set the call centre business up then. So, But it was all local. Yeah, it was all quite yeah. local work. And then you changed direction completely, didn't you? Mm, Talk yeah. to us about that. So I think I said earlier, I... I my career, if you'd have said, where did I start? It wasn't finance and it wasn't operations. It was more marketing and comms. And um, at the time, the, the city of Hull had just started, this was about 1998, had just started a programme around its image and its brand. And some of your listeners will remember the infamous COG that came out of that work. I remember it well. So KCOM was one of a number of businesses that was financially supporting that programme. And so somebody at KCOM said to me, we need somebody to go and sit on this small board of the investors in effect. Would you go and do it? And I said, yeah, why not? <laughs> Which is my usual phrase. And I went to the first meeting and met a chap called John Till. And some of you will, who went to the Business Week uh, last week, will have seen John doing the opening address. And in that first meeting, I just put my pen down and listened to him talk about brand and realised I didn't know anything about brand. I thought I did, but when I listened to him, I realised I didn't know a thing. So that project, which was supposed to be a, an occasional thing I did just to represent KCOM's investment became quite a big part of my uh, work for the next few months. And I got more and more interested in what John and this small team were trying to achieve, particularly because it was Hull, my city, and I realised then, I think, how proud I was, but also the massive gap between where the city was and where it mm. could be. And this was a, a project to change people's perception of the image of the city, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was. I mean, it was called City Image, mm. but it was... Um, a partner organisation to City Build, which was the physical regeneration and development of the city. So the two projects ran hand in hand. So it wasn't just about image, but you're right, it started with a big piece of perception research, mm. which basically said people outside of Hull don't think about Hull. They don't have a negative view. They just don't think about it. Why would they think about it? So, which was ironic because everybody in Hull thought Hull had a negative image with people outside the area. So this programme of work was starting a, a big sort of engagement internally and externally. And then after about four or five months, I met John for a coffee one day and he slid across the table a, a magazine which was open on a particular page for appointments and it was a job advert for City Image. <laughs> and he just said to me, have you seen this? And I hadn't. And he said, do you not want to apply for it? And I said, well, I could do. <laughs> and then we talked about what that would look like in terms of the job. And by the end of that coffee, I'd already decided I was going to apply for the job. And I got it. And then I spent arguably one of the best periods of my life working with John and a few other colleagues in City Image. And it was a public-private partnership. So we had 
government funding through the local authorities and also through Yorkshire Forward, the RDA at the time. And we had private sector funding through the bondholders, which we started to develop more as a as a membership. And we had loads of flexibility to do things um, and everybody wanted the same outcome, which was a better reputation for the city and, and the city region as it grew. Um, and it was just an amazing six years, actually. Amazing. And what happened to City Image then? Because it came to an end at, after six years. It did, years. yeah. There was a change of administration in the, in the council. Uh, there was a change of leadership. A new chief exec came in. Um, it was also a time when the regeneration funding um, regime had started to change. So there was this view, I think, from the council in particular that they could bring City Build and City Image together. And that's exactly what they did. Um, so John left. Um, I was asked if I wanted to stay and take over, but I decided not to. Um, and I would have been working within City Build. Um, uh, so but what I did do is I went and set up a small consultancy with John um, because in the previous three years we'd started to be contacted by other cities across the UK who were really intrigued particularly with the bondholder scheme mm. and how would we manage to get businesses to step into almost a place leadership role and so John and I together and independently and other colleagues had gone to different parts of the UK and given presentations so we suddenly realised that this was a growing uh, phenomenon and lots of city regions and towns were interested in bringing together the public sector behind a place narrative and really helping the place to reposition itself either as a place to do business, to live, to work, study and play, you know, that old adage. So John and I left and set up um, a small consultancy um, to do that. And again, I felt blessed because it was an amazing time. It was fantastic uh, opportunity to travel around the country. I spent lots of time away from home. Um, and I was blessed with two children who were really quite independent. So, um, and a daughter must be said if she's listening, who took on <laughs> the took on the um, the pseudo role of mum to her younger brother. And um, yeah, we had a great time. Um, until so were you in partnership with John then? Yeah, it was a limited company, right. um, and we both set it up as shareholders. Yeah. And we grew it, and we had. I think the it wasn't a, a massive business. I think we had six or seven people working for us at one point. And it was all going brilliantly well until 2008 when the crash happened. And actually it wasn't 2008. It took two years for it to seep through to us. But it was also probably the biggest lesson that I've learned in business, which was don't put all your eggs in one basket. Right. Because all of our clients were public sector. Mm. All of the public sector money dried up. And um, it was we our proposition hadn't changed, but we just were in with the wrong client base at the time. So it was a really, really struck difficult time. Um, John, to give him his due, managed to persevere, and the business has prospered since then. But for various personal reasons, I needed to leave and get a job, mm. and that was horrifically challenging because it was like a divorce between John and I, because we'd been business partners, we'd been colleagues. It was so hard to do, and I know he really felt the, the pain of that. And I, but he'll have too. understood the circumstances. Yeah, he did. He did completely, but it was a very difficult mm. time, really difficult time. So it was called Thinking Place. It was. So 
that was, you mentioned too, that, so 2010 maybe? Uh, yeah, I left in 2012. 2012, So right. we've been running okay. it together for six years. Okay. Um, but it's now 16 years old, yeah. 17 years yeah. old. And as you say, we saw John just the other week. Yeah. Um, still going strong. They are, they're doing some yeah. amazing work around the country. So back to you and after Thinking Place, is that when you made the move then into employee ownership? Mm. Okay, mm. which is obviously a very topical subject at the moment, lots of interest in it. So talk to us about your time there. So that started because I um, I kept in contact with a few colleagues from the City Image days and one of them was a partner from KPMG. And he and I had a coffee one day and he told me that he was taking up this new role at an organisation called the Employee Ownership Association, that it was a membership organisation and that he really wanted somebody to come along with him to help. And it's it was a business that was... It was formed in 1979 um, as a not-for-profit, but the membership had declined mm. and the sort of corporate proposition for membership was not very well developed. And so he said, I want you to come along with me and help me build it up. And it's a national organisation, isn't it? Mm. It's not just yeah. something that's like, yeah. yeah. It was based in London at the time, mm. but both he and I lived in the East Riding, so we brought it up to Brough. So it's a national membership organisation that's now still mm. based out of Brough. And why People not? Asked, and why not? Absolutely. To coin a phrase. Yeah, and why not? Um, <laughs> so yeah, so started there in 2012, um, Baptism of Fire. Um, I knew business, I knew businesses, I knew SMEs. I had never heard of employee ownership, like most people. Um, you only ever think of John Lewis and that was yeah, it, really. yeah. yeah. Um, and at that point in time, do you know, I don't even think I'd ever even been in a John Lewis because, of course, there isn't one locally around here. Oh, I know. We need um, John Lewis. If anyone's listening from John Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, so I started there. And after three years, uh, Ian, who was the previous chief exec, uh, stood down and I was interviewed by the board and I was appointed as chief exec. And we had... He, Ian had put in place the foundations of, and I carried this on and developed it further, a campaign to raise awareness of employee ownership and the value and benefit it can deliver to the economy and to individual businesses and, in my view, most importantly, to individual employees. So um, it was suited my skills completely. It was about influencing, campaigning, stood up on stages, trying to convince people this was something that was credible, worth looking at, then building a membership proposition to support businesses that were trying to do it. And it has gone from strength to strength because it is something people are much more familiar with now uh, as yeah. a concept and the association itself. Yeah, and I also think it's of its time. Mm. So the, the, the essence of it is... Yes, it's a change of ownership within a business. So, and it, fortunately, the description says what it does on the tin. Mm. It's employee ownership. So, it's businesses that are owned either minority or majority um, by employees, normally through a trust structure. So, all the beneficiaries of the trust are the employees, or it can be with direct shares. So, that's the what it is. But the reason I say it's of its time is because. It's about reducing levels of income and wealth inequality in society. It's uh, increasing levels of employee engagement and well-being in the workplace. And for the younger generations coming through into work now, it's a much more purpose-driven approach to running a business. 
So it's about how can that business support a wider group of stakeholders rather than just the founders or the shareholders in the case of a, a PLC. So I think it's time is now. Mm. And, you know, we when we started, when I started with the organisation back in 2012, it was just predated the government bringing in some tax incentives to support businesses and owners to move to employ ownership. Well, they still exist. So that in itself is a very uh, attractive proposition. Mm. Mm. But really the businesses that make the most of this are not doing it for that tax reason. They're doing it because they want to plan their succession. So rather than a trade sale or a management buyout, they want to see that business perpetuate and the legacy continue. And and again, from a government perspective now, the the levelling up agenda, Mm. which is about trying to develop regional economies, it's a it's a fabulous way of rooting businesses. I was just going to say, and retaining people. Yeah, absolutely. For sure, for yeah. Sure. So yeah. it's clearly something you're passionate about and um, you, rightly so, are passionate about it. And I know you're still involved to some degree because I'm going to come on to your current mm. portfolio career in a second. So why did you step away from the EOA um, and when was that? Uh, so I stepped away last year, um, uh, last March. That was March 2022. Um, I'd been there 10 years. Um, I knew that the next stage of the business needed something which is not a skill of mine, which is digital and digital transformation and a, a whole complete change of the offer, really, in terms of how the services are delivered. The business was also growing um, and uh, I, I hadn't sort of fallen out of love at any level with employee ownership. But I did recognise in much the same way businesses that become employee-owned recognise that I was just a custodian Mm. for a moment in time. And there was a team of people there who were quite ambitious to take it to the next level. I knew that if it had been me as a chief exec, I would have had to have brought somebody in who knew about digital and transformation. And I didn't feel fully equipped to actually manage that process or even find the right person. Mm. I also turned 55 in the January and I thought if I'm going to do some other stuff, I want to do some other stuff whilst I've still got the energy and the interest. So why not? And we'd been through COVID. It'd been a really difficult time. The whole team were amazing because we just, like many businesses, pivoted to online, not just working from home, but delivering a membership proposition for 500 businesses across the UK online. And I was quite exhausted, if I'm mm. being honest. Um, uh, so, yeah, th- those are all the reasons why. And and did you know at that point what you were going to do next? Or did you just want to take some time mm, out? I didn't really. Um, I knew I wanted to stay working with businesses. Yeah. The process... You've been doing a lot of travelling as well. So was it yeah. an opportunity to maybe stay a bit closer mm, to home? Or... No, because I like travel. Okay. Um, you know, it, it excites me and it interests me. Um I didn't know what I was going to do, but I knew I was going to do something with business. Um, I'm now passionate about responsible business and how businesses can be a force for good. And I thought I've probably learned quite a bit. I could probably share some of that. And then opportunities started to drip through. So I was approached by some of the businesses that were members of the EOA. Um, Would I join their boards as a non-exec? I was approached by some uh, asking if I would chair their employee ownership trusts. Mm. Uh, I was approached by some to do some consultancy work. So pretty quickly, 
I went busy again. <laughs> yeah, well, I took a month off and we went, uh, husband and I went uh, away. Um, but yeah, pretty quickly we just became, I, I just became really busy again. And now I've got what I'm told is called a portfolio career, which sounds very glamorous, doesn't it? What you have, it's a classic example. It is, it is. It just means you have to be super, super organised. But you are, I know you, and you are organised. If, if I showed you my um, Outlook calendar, you'd just smile because it's colour-coded, oh, depending on who, I'm, who I'm working for and what I'm doing. Oh. Um, and I'm also now more involved in charity as well. So I have been a trustee of Cat Zero for... Uh, four and a half years. Do you um, just want to quickly explain what Cat Zero is for those? Yeah, people so who don't Cat know. Zero is a local charity. Works across the Humber region. Works with mainly young people and their families, but occasionally with other groups like vets and um, uh, young children uh, to deliver lasting personal change. So it's to help people who maybe have never yet stepped onto the employment ladder, um, and it's not about dressing them in nice outfits and giving them techniques for CV writing. Although we do do some of that, it's about dealing with some of their deep-rooted challenges that have caused them never to be able to get that first step mm -hmm. on the ladder. So um, I'm very passionate about it. Um, it's helping young people in this region who I think have had a bit of a, a, a difficult start in life. Um, so I became a trustee 20 or well, four, four and a half years ago. Um, I was going to say 24 and a half no, years ago. Jeez. No. Four, four and a half years ago. <laughs> and then Jim Dick, who many people will know, stepped down. He was the founder or one of the three founders um, as chair in the end of last year. And the trustees asked me to take over as chair. Um, well, they manoeuvred me into yeah. it, actually. <laughs> but um, yeah. A bit like John Till with his magazine on the table. Yes. Yeah, yeah well, the, we, we, I remember we had a brainstorming session for who might join the board as trustees and who we might want as our chair. And I was at the front, as I usually am, with a pen and, you know, and the flip chart, and we're writing down all the traits of our next chair, and then we're writing a, a long list and a short list of <laughs> names of people we know. And we got to the end of the list, and I looked around at them all, and they said, well, there's a name missing off there, isn't there? I said, oh, uh, who? And then I saw them all look at me and I was like, really? Um, and they said, why not? And I said, why not? Yeah. So, yeah. So I'm, I'm doing that as well, which is really rewarding um, and helping the organisation hopefully grow sustainably over the next 15 years. Um, and there's one thing you haven't mentioned, which is that you're also the deputy lieutenant yeah. for the East Riding. One of, one Sorry. of. Sorry, how one. many are there? Is it three, two? No, no, no. The, um, so each each lieutenancy area. Is it lieutenant or lieutenant? Because I left lieutenant. I say lieutenant, but then yeah. I thought I was. So it is lieutenant. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so each lord lieutenant, and ours is Jim Dick, mm. has a vice lieutenant, and uh, that's Christopher Outred. Again, other people will know him. Um, and then there are a group of deputies. And uh, I think each lieutenancy area can have up to about 30 or 40 even. Oh, I see. Um, so um, I am one of, I think, about 16 or 17 across the East Riding, um, which, yeah, is a huge privilege. Um, yeah. And um, something that I'm, again, um, I'm quite humbled by. Um, you know, a, a girl from Hull, who didn't go to university, who's ended up with a DL after a name, which people ask me, what is that? So, um, Size of envelope, isn't it? Yes. 
<laughs> A5, A4. Yeah, it could be anything, couldn't it? And in your role as deputy left, not left, yeah. uh, lieutenant, yeah. um, have you what have you, have you had any specific jobs to do? Since yeah, you've had that? yeah. Well, it's I mean the the lieutenancy is there to represent the monarch mm. in each area. Um, so at key moments in time, uh, like on Remembrance Sunday, um, there's many villages and towns will ask for uh, the lieutenancy to be represented. Right. Um, so you are there representing the monarch, which is is quite. Um, it's quite humbling yeah. because when Sounds you very grand. when you go to these events, uh, you're there and you you are normally the most senior person. So uh, I've had the pleasure for the last two years since I was appointed of going to Hedden and uh, on Remembrance Sunday and laying the wreath at the the surface there, yeah. which is which is amazing. Um, I've opened a flower festival in Hessel, Um and from time to time, the Lieutenancy Office will contact us and say, "Would you be available for this event or whatever?" And do you and get, I, as part of the role, do you get invited to royal events? Um, I haven't been invited to any royal events um, yet. No. Um, uh, Jim, of course, was present for um, celebrations for the Platinum Jubilee, uh, the Queen's funeral and uh, the coronation. So, um, as I said to him the other week, on his watch, he's had all the big ticket yes, um, celebrations amazing. and commemorations, should I say. Yeah. So I, I haven't been invited to anything uh, as yet. And it's not probably for us to be invited, if I'm being honest. It's more about recognizing people in the community and mm. businesses so the queen the, the king's award as it is now the king's award um program is something that i work with a small group of other dls on uh, to make sure local businesses know about that award uh, there's an equivalent for the voluntary sector and then you've got the honors system as well so which i was going to ask so talking about letters after your name mm -hmm. mrs oxley um there are three other letters after your name before the dl mm -hmm. do you want to tell everybody what they are that's OBE. OBE, um, well done. As I said recently to somebody else uh, when I was awarded it, somebody said, well, you know what that stands for, don't you? Others' bloody efforts. <laughs> <laughs> as opposed to an MBE, which is my bloody efforts. <laughs> I've not um, heard that before. So, yeah, that was a, gosh, that was a huge, huge surprise, literally a surprise. Um because the envelope just arrives through the post. And you're sworn to secrecy, aren't you, for a mm, period of time? Yeah, my husband and I had great fun with that. Yeah. Um, so we weren't allowed to tell anybody. I did actually tell the team. And the reason I told the team is because I've always thought that wasn't for me, it was for them. So what was the honour for, do you know? Oh, it obviously was for, it was an OBE, but it for It was for employee ownership. Right. Um, and social enterprise for some reason. That's what the actual award said. Um so, yeah, that arrived through the post um, in about, I think it must have been October time. Um, and you, you're asked, the opening line says something like, um, uh, uh, it's from the, from the Queen as it was at the time, I have been recommended by um, the Prime Minister to award you. And I literally had, I was in the kitchen on my own. I'd been away with work. I picked up the post. I opened this very grand envelope and I had to read it about five times before it actually sunk in oh, what it was. Um, and, um, yeah, we drank a bottle of champagne that night. Too bloody right. Um, in the kitchen and then realised we weren't allowed to tell anybody. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, that was awarded for um, employee ownership. I think it came off the back of the team 
uh, we delivered a big piece of research. Um, it was a, a group of hearings across the country, which was uh, called the Ownership Effect Inquiry. And the results of that was the Ownership Dividend Report, which was evidence about the impact of employee ownership. We then used that to influence others. So we influenced the intermediary groups of uh, professional advisors and the banks, politicians, the media. So I'm sure it was awarded for that. It just said employee ownership and social mm. enterprise. Um, and the reason I told the team is because that was a team effort, you know, and yes, I got it, but um, it was the team that, that you know, together we, we got that. So, yeah, that was a really special yeah. time. Well, and then I know it was a while ago, but again, congratulations. Thank you. Because it was well-deserved. And who actually presented you with the, the well, honour? The then Prince Charles, oh, who is now King okay. Charles, um, in Buckingham Palace, which was... An amazing experience, just truly amazing. Um, the most nervous I have ever been. I can't imagine you being nervous for oh, anything. <laughs> I was ridiculously nervous. So ridiculously nervous. I'm going to say this now. I don't think I've told anybody else this. My husband knows. But I called him Your Majesty. When, of course, he wasn't Your Majesty at that point. Um, but I was so ridiculously nervous. You stand in a long queue. You're taken into a room. You're briefed. You stand in a long queue in the order in which you're going to receive it. They they shout your name out or they announce your name. You walk up. He is ridiculously well briefed. So he asked me, what is employee ownership? He then asked me... Clearly um, your campaign hasn't reached, hadn't reached Buckingham Palace. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we talked about what it was. I mean, I say we talked about it. I was probably there for 30 seconds, yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, and then he asked me, uh, did I enjoy it? What I did? And I said, Yes. Um, and then he very politely but very firmly took hold of my hand and pushed me slightly away, oh. which is the end of my, you know, it's moment. A, yeah, it's a signal yeah. that you're over and out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was, it was, it was an amazing experience. I something bet. I'll never ever forget. So, if you were to do well, why did why is that not in your frame? So you know your object's at the beginning, and it was more it was the marathon. I still um, think the marathon has been because that's too recent. That was right, okay. that was 2019, and. I suppose I was thinking about our chat today mm. and having listened to some of your other uh, podcasts, thinking, oh, she's probably going to ask me about my my career today. And I was trying to think of something I could bring in that I think has directly represents or influenced. And I'm sure when I think about, and anybody who's done any major sporting achievement, I'm sure will what I said will resonate you know, the perseverance you have to have, the tenacity, the confidence, the plan, mm. the resilience to get yourself up and dust yourself down when it goes wrong. And I'm sure when I think about my career, I've had plenty of times when things haven't worked out as they should have done or as I hoped they would. But I've been fortunate to be resilient enough mm. to, to, to get back up after that. I think you're right. I think that certainly from my experience, people I know who have been successful in sport, not necessarily at a national, international level, but at what in the sport of their choice or whatever level they attain to be, the the skills and the discipline and mm. that character that they've developed as a result of that is so transferable into business. And as a result, they're successful in business as well. Yeah. And if, um, should I say this? Yeah, I am going to say it. So when I'm interviewing, if someone has come, has got that interest in sport or, or that success in sport at any level, that is a definite tick in the box mm. for me anyway, personally. Yeah. Well, I think it, it, 
there's lots of things, isn't there? You don't have to be sporty. You could, but you might have already committed yourself to another cause. And if you commit yourself to something mm. outside of work, it's very telling on that person's character. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. so people who volunteer, for example, I know people who've volunteered, you know, they might have been a school governor for years and years. And to do that takes perseverance, commitment, mm. d- you d- deal with disappointments, mm. you have to develop your own self-confidence. So anything that's voluntary, I think, you know, is a sign of somebody's perseverance and commitment, which are all skills that you, as you say, yeah. you'd want in yeah. somebody who works in a and team. And I think just taking the sporting analogy again, it's um, for me, it's the teamwork, that ethic of, of being in a team mm. and wanting to succeed together, which is really important, mm. which you demonstrated when you got the the OBE. You wanted mm. to share it with a team even though you couldn't. Mm. So I just want to, I'm conscious of time, so I just want to go back to the beginning when you talked about your parents and um, they were very supportive but perhaps not inspirational. Mm-hmm. I dare say I know the names of your children. Uh, it seems odd calling them children now. Mm-hmm. Martha and Robert, um, who are obviously a lot older mm-hmm. now. Um I'm pretty sure if I was to ask them, they'd say that you were truly inspirational. So just talk a bit about your relationship with them and mm-hmm. what they're doing. And do you, do you honestly feel that you have influenced that? And if so, how? So, um, yeah, I, I'd like to think I've influenced them. Um, one of the things that I was taught very early by my parents, and this is because they didn't have that much, although, you know, my mum's still alive, dad died four years ago, mum's 93, um, was the importance of um, hard work. Mm. And that's definitely something that, you know, for me, uh, I just embraced. And so my first part-time job was when I was 12. So one of my best friend's parents had a fruit stall, uh, a fruit shop. Um, And I used to work on a Friday night with her filling up the um, apples and oranges and what have you and the potatoes. And then on a Saturday when the shop was open, we'd keep replenishing. And then I went from there to work in a shoe shop when I was 15 and a bakery when I was 16. So I've always worked. So one of the things my two children will tell you is that I insisted they both got part-time jobs. Um, And Martha, bless her, uh, got a job on Beverly Market and for very little money. I think she earned about £2 a day on a hat stand with one of her friends. And she went there, whether it was sunny or rainy. Mm. And I would often, most weeks, match whatever she earned because that was me acknowledging to her that she was doing something that was really important. And now, you know, she's a really successful young woman forging her own career in London really works very hard. Rob, um, again, Rob's is just uh, doing something different. He's 25. Um, he's just about to come out of the army, actually. Um, but again, uh, always worked hard, not as committed to academia as his sister, but always put his heart and soul into everything. And ironically, they both now run as well. Um, now, their dad is a runner, so um, they've obviously inherited that from him and, um, and and I started running when we first met. But um, they've both gone through the pain of, you know, not liking running at all, hating it, hmm. and now they both totally embrace it. And um, Rob did his first London marathon. I was just going to ask if they did a London. Yes, but a lot faster than I did. He's only 25, though. He did it in three hours 14, oh, which was amazing. That is pretty good, um, yeah. So I do... I'm, I'm, <laughs> We're all pro- we're all products, aren't we, of our parents? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That can be good. That can be bad. Um, 
I think I've tried to be more inspirational than maybe my parents were able to be. And I don't blame them for that mm. because I've traveled more in my career. I've had many more experiences than my mum and dad ever could have had. I've encouraged my children and my two stepchildren as well, when I can, to to be adventurous, mm -hmm. you know, spend your money traveling and having experiences, not buying things mm -hmm. um, and put yourself forward and work hard. If you work hard and people know you work hard, you will be successful. Whereas I, I don't think I could have, I wasn't inspired like that by my parents. So I, you know what it's like? You look at what your parents did and you mm. try to correct anything that you didn't exactly. think was, exactly. was good enough. But we're all going to make mistakes. Yeah, I'm sure yeah. I'm sure I've made loads of mistakes. See, I kind of looked at um, my mum. My mum was a housewife and I kind of decided I don't want... I, just didn't want to be that. Mm. So maybe she was inspiring me in a different way. Mm. I was more inspired by my dad who was in business. So, well, on that positive note, your positive note rather than what I just said, um, I think we'll end it there because I'm conscious of time, but that's been fascinating and you deserve all the success you've had. Thank um, you. I've known you for a long time and you're in, you are inspirational, not just to your family, but to others as well, like Thank myself. You. Um, yeah, you've, you've done an amazing job wherever you've been. Um, and it's a privilege to know you and to call you a friend. So oh, thank you. Um, and I wish you all the best in your obviously very busy portfolio career as it <laughs> will continue. <laughs> so as is tradition, I'm going to now ask you a question that's been left by our previous guest. Um, so if you just bear with me while I look. OK, so here we go. The question is, with everyone having to be more sustainable, what are the three things that you know you'll have to give up, but you're going to find hard to do so? Oh, um, well, I presume the question is about environmental sustainability. Yes, I think that's where it was coming okay, from. Okay, so if you stick to that, because I, you know, I could say sustainability is about more than just environment, but let's not go there. Um, well, I've already given up a diesel car, so I've got an electric car. Um, how are you finding that? I absolutely love it. It's a bit scary. I was going to say, don't you have that anxiety? Oh, I no, I don't have that anxiety. Oh. I think that's ridiculous that people have that. Well, first of all, Anybody who's got an electric car will have a charging point at home. Mm. Yes, you need to plan your journey, but it's dead easy to do. The car even tells you, you know, most mm. electric cars, if you've got a sat-nav, which they all have, it tells you you're going to have to stop and you just need to plan better. But you have to you have to queue or you're just hoping that the charge is going to be free when you get there. Yeah, but, you know, we're always, we're all trying to get everywhere so fast, aren't we? Mm. So um, I've given up. The other car, I absolutely wouldn't go back now. Okay. I'll stick to an electric car. Thank you very much. Um, I, I've already rebalanced my diet, so I eat quite a lot of plant-based um, stuff and no dairy, but that's because of IBS and other things. Um, but I would miss meat. If somebody said to me, you can never have a steak again, I would miss that. That's definitely. Um, what else would I miss? Um, probably because I'm a very cold person, um, putting the fire on, you know, I, I older, older people, my mum and dad, when he was alive, used to always say, if you're cold, put an extra jumper mm. on. And of course I have said that to my children, but there's nothing nicer is it than cranking on the fire on a really cold night. Yeah. And I can imagine at some point gas fires, for example, will be a thing of the past, but will be a thing of the past. Um, so yeah, I'd probably miss a steak. I'd miss turning on the fire when I need to. Oh, the last thing. I know this is four, but I've the, well, you've car, already done the, the car, car doesn't really count. So that doesn't count. Travel. 
So mm. my husband is passionate about environmental sustainability, decarbonisation, etc. And he keeps trying to encourage us to do less air travel to the extent they bought me a book at Christmas about how we can travel from home all around Europe on, by train. And he wants us to, tra- to start doing that. And how um, are you feeling about that? Well, that's fine. But, you know, in, in the next 10 years, I'd like to go for a big trip to Canada and I'd like to go to India and I'd like to go down to Australia and New Zealand. Well, you know. Good gonna, luck. Yeah, we're going <laughs> to fly. So, yeah, I think probably travel is one of the yeah. big things that I would miss if I had to really substantially cut back on, on air travel. I think I concur with that one. Anyway, good. Right. Well, thank you for that. I look forward to um, seeing what your question is going to be for our next guest next month. But thanks again, Deb. It's been a joy to see you on this glorious sunny day. And I hope you've got a great afternoon planned and you can make the most of the sunshine. Thanks, Anita. So that's it for this month. Um, as always, we'd love to hear from you. So please do get in touch via our normal social media channels. And I look forward to talking to you again next month. Thank you and bye-bye. This Pacecast was recorded and produced by Engine 7 Audio, award-winning audio production.